Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we have a very special guest with us, Jerome Preisler, the author of a fantastic new book, Civil War Commando, William Cushing, and the Daring Raid to Sink the Ironclad CSS Albemarle. And what I found really fascinating about this book was William Cushing's life. He was just an amazing guy. This was definitely a James Bond, or if you want to go with a more modern uh, Jack Ryan, this guy was it. He liked combat. He liked to get into it. And he was a free thinker, very young guy. And what he contributed to the Union effort during the Civil War is, is huge. We've got a great opportunity today to talk to the author, and let me introduce him. Here he is, Jerome Preisler. It's great to have you with us. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be here. First question I had for you, what drew you to Will Cushing's story and made you decide to write the book? Well, um, I'm, I'm all, as someone who's, who's written a number of narrative military histories, uh, I'm always interested in, in the kind of maverick who becomes a hero. I'd previously done a book called First to Jump, which was about um, a group called the Pathfinders that fought in World War II, and uh, they were exactly that. They they fit. They were a, a group of guys that nobody thought would succeed, and, and actually um, succeeded in in ways that were off the charts. And after doing that book, I was looking to do something that took place in a, in a different era. So I just started poking around, and I stumbled across Will's story. Uh, really, just just on the internet, I'd I'd seen a couple of short pieces about him on different websites, and uh, the more I I researched him, the more I came to see that this the story amazed me. Um, this this was uh, it's ridiculous to say you know say well his life is like a movie it should kind of be the other way around but in fact it was so cinematic I just thought wow somebody has to have have done um, a major book about him. And, and I checked, and there had been a couple over the years, but none of them were really kind of uh, narrative histories that captured the, the adventure and, and, and daring do of, um, of this guy's life. So it was at that point, I just, um, I, I couldn't wait to write about him. It's a good moment when you know you've got something, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, exactly. And it, and it happens often enough that you... You find a great story, and then you, you 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 investigate, and you find out, oh man, you know somebody else just wrote a book. It's coming out next month. Yeah, but um, it was it, it was just right there and, and and waiting for me. Who was Will Cushing, and why do you call him a Civil War commando? 
Will Cushing was, first of all, he was very young when all this took place, as you, as you said. And that was, that's really important because we're talking about a man of 18, 19, 20, who grows throughout the narrative of the book and ultimately becomes a hero. But to step back a moment, uh, he was born in a town called Fredonia, New York. Uh, he was f- fairly well-connected uh, in, in the sense that his, his cousin, Joseph Smith, was chief of, of the yards and docks uh, of, the, of the U.S. Navy, which was a very powerful position. Uh, he was the person who was really responsible for all naval construction during, prior to and during the Civil War. He also had an uncle who was a uh, congressman. And that kind of was a saving grace for him because other than that, he had a very difficult youth. And that is because Will's father was a person who was never really found his direction in life, um, literally and, and metaphorically. He wandered the country, had a lot of business endeavors that didn't work out, had a lot of, borrowed a lot of money that he couldn't pay back. And ultimately, it's kind of harsh to use the word, but he really did kind of abandon his family, leaving Will and four or five siblings and his mom in a boarding house in Chicago. Will was a tough kid. And when he and his early on, after his father left and and his family relocated to his father's birthplace in Fredonia, New York, Will really had to chip in to um, support the family at a very young age. Uh, all of the all of the siblings did. And, and, and because he he had no father around, he really l- learned to fend for himself with his fists. He grew into a very hot tempered youth and young man and was not. A, and again, I'm jumping around, but um, to kind of get to the high points, when he when he was in the in the uh, eventually admitted into the naval academy through his family's pulling a few strings, Will was a terrible student, was ousted from the academy, and really not expected to do well. But eventually um, he does, and eventually he grows into what we call a Civil War commando. The reason I call him a commando briefly is that uh, Will Will really. Um, um, developed uh, these uh, techniques uh, to um, of raiding Confederate ports, uh, raiding conf- Confederate outposts with very small number of uh, men and very small fighting ships. And over time, he be- he he really was on the prowl uh, on his own um, on his own string looking for targets of opportunity. And as he did that, and as he grew, um, he, he developed techniques that became the foundation for later techni- te- techniques used later on by the U.S. Navy, ultimately Navy SEALs and groups like that. What yep. was the CSS Albemarle? What was going on with the ironclad ships at that time? What was the threat to the South and to the Union? Well, prior to um, the Civil War uh, in the United States and really throughout the world, um, naval warfare was conducted between uh, wooden ships. In the um, early to mid-19th uh, um, century, 
Europe really began to develop the first ironclad ships, and that was exactly what you what it sounds like. They were clad in iron. They used iron plates to uh, build um, armor around um, wooden wooden foundations. And as we uh, got into the 1860s and um, got into the Civil War in the in the uh, states, uh, there was really a race between the North and South and the secretaries of the respective secretaries of the Navy, uh, Stephen Mallory for the South and uh, Gideon Wells for the North to develop um, ironclads, which would establish their navies as being far superior to, uh, to the, to whichever one didn't develop them on time. Also in terms of the South, because they were at a disadvantage um, having many fewer vessels and, and therefore a much fewer Navy, they were, uh, Mallory was um, really at the um, vanguard of, of, of trying to get ahead of the North and uh, develop these, uh, these ironclads. The CSS Albemarle was one of those. One uh, feature of the Albemarle and some of the other ironclads was um, a ram. And just to explain that briefly, Again, it is what it sounds like. They they were armed. They had guns, but the, their chief way of really uh, asserting um, combat superiority over a wooden warship was to ram them with. Um, if you can picture a kind of iron tusk at the front of uh, at at the bow of of these vessels, and they could really plow right into uh, some of the, the the best and biggest wooden uh, warships of the time and smash right right through them, just sink them by, by boring you large holes right into their hulls or splitting them almost in half. So um, that's why the, uh, uh, the ironclads became uh, so important to both um, the Union and the Confederacy and why the race to really um, go from wood to iron became so uh, important to both sides. Now, the Albemarle was important because it was one of the more effective uh, ironclads, or was it the only ironclad that the South had? No, there were several. Okay. No, the, the South, of course, had the, I forget what they called the Merrimack, but mm -hmm. because it's another story, but, they, but the South had other ironclads, but, the, but what, what was so important about the Albemarle was really where it was positioned and um, the, the waters it was defending. And that was um, the waters off the coast of the Carolinas, Virginia, Plymouth. Um, these were important waterways for, for both sides. Uh, they were important for the, for the, to the south because they were its principal shipping lanes. That's how they got supplies, uh, military supplies, civilian supplies, um, that was really the, the the water hub of their of their economy. Put it a little bit clumsily. The um, in, in order for the North to succeed, they depended on interdiction. They needed to stop those supplies from flowing. And once the Albemarle was in was in, um, in in position, they couldn't do that. That's why it 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 loomed so large in terms of the war. It's a fantastic story you've got when he, uh, he's three months from graduating at Annapolis, but he's a hothead, and he hasn't yet learned self-control, I guess would be the mm -hmm. best way to put it. 
And he's, he's given a break again and again and again and again by the guys who run the academy. But finally, he just screws up one last time. And with three months still to go before he can graduate, he's out. But then it's almost the Civil War breaks out. He's already proven himself to some degree as a guy who can handle boats extremely well. His navigational skills are good. He's already shown his courage. And he's picked almost the way the CIA picks people. They pick, they pick individuals that are kind of out there, uh, maybe looking for a little attention for themselves, maybe looking for a way to find self-worth. But they got the right guy at the right time, it sounds like, with Will Cushing. Yeah, you know, the, that Civil War, uh, Civil War, excuse me, the um, CIA analogy is, is, is really a great one. Um, uh, just before uh, the, the pandemic, when we could travel a bit more, I had um, visited the CIA uh, in, in, in Washington. This was last, late last February and uh, spoke to a lot of their, uh, their analysts there. And um, yeah, what you said is exactly right. He, he fit an interesting profile that probably wasn't even a profile then. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to digress for a minute. When I wrote this, the, the other book to which I alluded, the uh, World War II book, there was a guy named Jace McNeese who was with the 101st Airborne. And I, I wrote a lot about him in that book. Um, and he headed a, a, a group of these pathfinders who, who were um, parachuted into really set the markers for the other parach parachuters to follow in Normandy and elsewhere. The reason I bring that up is uh, Jake would always Jake was another maverick, very much set from the same cloth, uh, cut from the same cloth as Will, and he would always say in his later years, "I just wasn't a good garrison soldier," meaning that you know when he had to like cool his heels. He would get himself into trouble. Will was was just like that. Um, again, what you said was was really accurate. Will was he always did did really well in in, in, uh, in his seamanship drills and, and all those courses where he really blew it was was uh, infamously it's in Spanish uh, where he had a feud with his, with with his language teacher that just blew got out of hand and really got him in trouble at the academy. He so, so he he was just that type that he was never gonna gonna do well in this kind of structured academic environment, but at the same time he was clever, he was audacious, he was patriotic, and he was eager to do well as um, as a member of the navy. He just he had to do it in 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 um, a, a less than conventional way. To elaborate on something else you said, um, one of the things that he had going for him, and it was just, uh, if you can call it a, a war serendipity, but it was uh, because of uh, the war broke out, uh, he had actually been ousted from the academy before the, the, uh, be just before the war. When war broke out, um, suddenly there was, a, there was a real need for, for naval officers. And, and, and sailors, uh, Navy sailors in general. We need to keep in mind that um, the Naval Academy at Annapolis just before the war was made up of, of uh, young men from both the North and South. Well, as we got closer and closer to the outbreak of war, the, the, the Southern students began resigning from the Naval Academy. By the, once war broke out, 
they were all gone. And even the even the existing officers, people who were already in the Navy, now resigned their, their commissions in, in the um, Union Navy and moved to the South. So suddenly there was this big need. So it made um, it made the Secretary of the Navy and others uh, a bit more inclined to, to uh, overlook Will's failings in, in, in certain regards because they needed somebody. And he, he was not immediately accepted. He really was, you know, restored to the Navy under certain conditions and over time conducted himself with such uh, excellence and that uh, they could no longer, um, they, they, could no, they couldn't close their eyes to what this, this guy was doing. He seemed like a natural here he's 19 years old. He's, they're basically giving him a pirate's license to go and take whatever he wants to take out, which was yep. quite incredibly, as he wrote home about, uh, quite an incredible feat. He was proud of himself and and, and well should have been. Then came the opportunity uh, with the album Marl. Describe how that was set up and how and how they chose him for Mission Impossible and how and just how impossible was that mission? What was he up well, against? There. Uh, there's one thing I, that I think it's it's really great to mention because it, it really sets up almost the drama of this whole thing. Um, one of uh, Will's benefactors, both in the Navy and in life, was uh, a man uh, named Charles Flusser, who commanded a blockading squadron for the uh, for the um, Union Navy. Flusser really took Will under his wing and bailed him out of a lot of sticky situations. When the Albemarle the CSS Albemarle, which was made its initial run during the Confederate attack on Plymouth, um, when it, uh, Flusser attempted to stop it and was killed in that attempt. This was Will's mentor, his closest friend, other than his brother, the person, one of the people and, and members of his, other than his brother and members of other members of his family, one of the people Will cared about most in the world. And when Charles Flusser died, Will wrote in a letter, I believe to his mother, that he would avenge his death. So, cut ahead about, I believe, six to nine months. The Albemarle is now guarding Plymouth Harbor. It is uh, actually sitting in the harbor behind the carcass, the wooden carcass of the ship that Flusser was on when he was killed. And stand, standing atop that wooden carcass in the, in, the, in the shallows of the harbor are Confederate guards or pickets, as, as they were called. All around the, the harbor and the approach to the harbor, which is a very narrow inlet, are more Confederate pickets on either side of the harbor. These are hundreds of men, uh, obviously armed and fortifications uh, around them. You couldn't, with a wooden, with, with a wooden warship, you weren't going to, you weren't going to sink the USS Albemarle. Its, uh, its iron hide was going to deflect any kind of uh, cannon, sh cannon fire, any kind of shot you were going to level against it. You certainly couldn't ram it with a wooden vessel because you were going to come out at the worst end of that. The only way to really get at it, and this was determined using different forms of intelligence, which, which 
they relied on very highly back then. It was isn't something just for modern times. Was that the lower portion of the Albemarle was the only part of it that was wooden, and there was an area, or or that was actually part of its its outer hull that was wooden and exposed. So there was a small area that you could attack. That portion of 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 the ship was usually underwater, although at low tide, it could be fully or partially exposed. If you were going to blow up the Albemarle or, or attack the Albemarle, that was its weak point. That was its Achilles heel. Once that was determined, Will, because of his long, at that point, history of launching small-scale raids with maximum effectiveness against the Confederacy, was a natural for that sort of attack. Also, the sheer audacity he had shown in the last year or so as he got command of, um, of, of different ships and conducted the raids that I just, that, that I just mentioned. So um, Will was, was kind of called into the admiral's office and um, asked to come up with a plan, which he did. The eventual plan really was a combination of Will's plan and, and, and several others that, that were drawn up by other people in the Navy. But that plan was to launch a small-scale attack, and it was only, um, 50, 50, I believe, 13 men, 13, 14 men on a 35-foot-long picket boat or launch. Um, they developed something called, called a spar. There was something called a spar torpedo. A spar is a long wooden pole that's really used and that's no, known for um, raising sails on. Now a message from our sponsors. Grab, grab some of that uh, good whiskey that's probably just a... Right. <laughs> a no, well, over here it's more like microbrewery beer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The 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 the, the impact that Will's mission had upon the war was really twofold. From a, a morale and psychological perspective, it gave the Union a huge boost. The um, to look at the broader picture of the war at that time. Union forces were really bogged down in various places, and nobody had really, or people had really underestimated how long the war was going to take, as happens in a lot of wars. Lincoln was under a lot of fire, both both from politicians and from the American public, because, and by fire I mean he was under a lot of pressure to really end the war. People weren't seeing a way out of it, and the Union had also suffered a lot of losses that was eroding the public morale. So Lincoln was looking for a big victory and one that would really stir the passions uh, and the confidence of the American people. Will's destruction of the Albemarle was just that. It gave, uh, it gave Lincoln, at a time when he was nearing his re-election campaign, something to really talk to the American people about and show the American people and say, look, look at what we've done. 
we've performed the mission impossible in a sense. So that was really, really important. Sounds like Doolittle's raid, only 80 years yeah, later. Yeah. Same, same uh, psychological effect. Yeah. From a, from a more practical point of view, it, it allowed the Union to retake Plymouth because without the Albemarle guarding it, they were, they were then able to launch a, a, a land-water attack. I, I hesitate to use land-sea because it was, it was riverine warfare, but they were able to, to launch a naval and land attack on, on the Confederate forces in Plymouth, and that led to the Confederates ceding Plymouth to the Union. One of the most surprising things I found was actually related not so much to Will's military career, but to his personal life, and that, to me, is a very important part of the book. In those days... A lot of families had family histories that were written by a prominent member of the family and, as one might might imagine, were very flattering to everyone in the family. You hardly read about someone being uh, a rotten SOB in uh, a family history. Will's father was always described as in the family history as a doctor, which he was not. He never had a medical degree and a very fine, upstanding person. And, I, and he really was not, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, although it's hard for it to sound otherwise, but, but what I mean to say is that he was a man who really never found his way in life. He posed as a doctor a couple of, in a couple of states and ultimately would move on from those states. And the reason he would pose as a doctor was in order to land civil service jobs, places like Wisconsin, certain parts of Wisconsin, certain parts of Illinois were uh, given out to people who had certain skills and medical skills were important to them. And he put that into, into greater focus in terms of Will's life. In order to understand Will, we have to understand his background. And I don't like to psychoanalyze someone who's been gone for uh, a century and a half, but I think it's important to, to really understand what makes a person what he is, regardless of whether he's uh, alive now or alive in, in, a, in an earlier time. For, for me to find out that Will's father never graduated the college he said he graduated, did not go to medical school, was not a doctor, and was really not around for Will's entire childhood, explained a lot to me about why Will had so much difficulty conforming to rules and regulations early in life. He was a kid who had to fight for himself from, a, from the time he was eight, nine years old. And by fight, again, I'm talking about with his fists, uh, as well as... Um, to fight to help support his family. Uh, and and in, in, in looking at his life in context, I really think that that stemmed from his, his upbringing and the, the difficulties that arose from not just not having a father, but having a father who um, really um, uh, deserted the family and left them, um, left them to fend for themselves with very, very little means. Yeah, you're, you're basically a novelist, and you've worked with Tom Clancy. 
How do you find writing history different from writing thrillers? It's very much the same. The techniques I use are almost identical. I feel that a good history needs to be exciting. So do I. It, yep. It, uh, it, it should be what 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 turns so many people off the history when they're kids is you're you're learning it from from textbooks and you really don't get a sense of what it was like to live these adventures. So if you're going to write, from my perspective, if I'm going to write history, I want people to be boots on the ground. I want them to experience what's happening as if they're 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 there as close as I can possibly possibly recreate an experience, or at least from a reader's perspective, at least as if they're reading a darn good suspenseful novel. So I, I use all my storytelling techniques in, in Civil War Commando, the same techniques I would use writing any sort of thriller. That's one of the, um, the things that's similar. And I think the other thing, again, because one of the, the, the most important uh, qualities of a, of a Clancy-esque novel or, and, and really a Tom Clancy franchise novel, of which I've written a number, is that they have to be well-researched. You can't make mistakes in in terms of the, the, the weapons, the history, anything. So if you put that together, you put the research together with the storytelling techniques, you get a great novel and you get a great history. And that's really, that's really the, um, how they're similar. Uh, one thing I will add is one of the differences is, is that obviously when you get into trouble writing a novel and, and by that, I mean, as a writer, you might hit a spot where I think, Oh my God, how do I get my hero out of this thing? Well, you can't really do that in nonfiction because it happened. <laughs> I can't go back and say, well, why don't you try this wheel? Maybe you shouldn't put that wagon on the back of that mule. You can't do that. So you, you, you have to stick to the facts, obviously, as they happen. Another thing you have to do is, in, from my perspective as a writer, is I don't add dialogue. Um, in a novel, you make up dialogue. You want to have some, some, your characters talking back and forth. You write it. Right. Unless, unless you're going to go the historical fiction route. And then that's, right. you know. Right. Then you open and yourself I, up to how much yeah. of this is truth and how much is fiction. Yeah, and some writers do take liberties, but I don't. I feel it's really important not to. So all of the dialogue in something like Civil War Commando, that was stuff that it's documented. This is what the person said in that situation. And I, it's either documented by by the person's own account or by a newspaper article or 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 an action report, meaning a, 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 a you know a military action report. So anything that's said in those novels really was said. And I think that's important. But our interview today in no way describes just how much action is in this book. You chose well because you've loaded it with action. It's an, it's an adventure and it's a true story, which really makes this an incredible, an incredible story and an incredible job on your part in bringing all this forward. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a little excerpt from your page 274. And uh, Flusser, oh, who it. you had mentioned, who was a, a, basically a mentor to our hero here, uh, is versus the Goliath. The Confederate ram had pierced clear through to her forward storeroom and boiler. Then the unexpected happened. The impact of the armored behemoth striking the rope lashings put tremendous stress on them. Stress the chains Flusser had originally intended to use might have withstood. As the mortally wounded Southfield continued forging ahead on her own steam, 
and the straining ropes buckled and snapped. The Albemarle wedged apart the two Federal gunboats, and the Miami swung wildly around toward the south field. Lieutenant French's ship lost. He ordered his crew into their boats. But as the Miami stern came swinging toward them, he instructed such men as could do so to jump on her decks. Some succeeded, while some splashed helplessly into the Roanoke. Still others, unable to get off in time, went down with the ship. French, leaping across the gap, was among those to land on the Miami safely. Meanwhile, the Miami's crewmen were lobbing grenades through the ironclad's portholes. Captain Cook repeatedly shouted for luck to reverse engines, but the ram's iron plates were deeply entangled in the frame of the Yankee vessel. The Southfield had begun to fill and settle down on the Albemarle, forcing her bow to submerge. "'She's taken water!' the ironclad's crewmen shouted. The river came gushing through her portholes as she tilted forward. That's good action, Jerome. It's great stuff. And this, whole, really. this, this whole book is, is, uh, is interesting. From the time midshipman Cushing refuses to stay long enough to graduate and is soon swept into the Civil War, all the way through to the action and sinking the Albemarle. It's a fantastic read. I enjoyed it very much, and congratulations to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Jerome, could you share a little bit about the projects you're currently working on? I'm currently working on a series called NetForce that was co-created by Tom Clancy back in the mid-90s. It ran for about 10 years and then was discontinued around the time of Tom's death. A few years ago, uh, I, I got together with a few people to, to relaunch the series and uh, am currently writing the about to begin the third novel in the series. The second novel, which is called NetForce Attack Protocol, will be out December 1st of this year. Uh, or the first one came out last year, and that's called uh, NetForce Dark Web. And I'm really proud of these because we were able to bring concepts that were cutting edge back when the series was originally created and update them um, and, and so that they'd be uh, hopefully entertaining to um, a, a contemporary readership. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in the dark web out there, as long as you don't go there. But there's certainly no, interest in reading, uh, in reading good fiction on it. And, and, and also, like, like Civil War Commando, uh, my stuff is very character-driven. So uh, hopefully I've created a number of really interesting characters that are going to captivate people over the course of the series. Well, Jerome Preisler, it's been a great being able to talk with you today. Thank you so much for taking this time to share the inside track on your story, Civil War Commando, William Cushing and the Daring Raid to Sink the Ironclad CSS Albemarle. And where can people pick up this book, plus your new NetForce series books? Wherever good books are sold. <laughs> and that's always the best answer. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, 1001 Heroes. Appreciate it. And it was nice being able to meet you uh, via Skype here. Good luck to you in the future. Thank you so much, John. I had a good time. All right. Thank you.
drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.